Hello and welcome to the next episode of Unmet Need. I am your host, Jeff Smith. Our guest today on episode 10 is David Shaw. David is an expert in all things patent. David received a bachelor's degree from North Carolina State University in chemical engineering. He went on to get a law degree from Duke University. David was a law clerk to the federal judge Raymond C. Clavenger III. He went on to become an associate at the law firm Fish and Richardson. David was the vice president of legal affairs, chief patent and corporate counsel at Intuitive Surgical going back to 1999. He then went on to be the vice president of legal affairs and the general counsel for Kaifon from 2003 to 2007. After Medtronic acquired Kaifon, David began his current consulting practice where he advises early stage med tech companies on patent strategy, litigation, diligence, and so much more. David, thanks so much for being on Unmet Need. Appreciate you being on the show. No, you're welcome, Jeff. It's, uh, it's my favorite thing to do on a Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're very gracious for the time. We'll, we'll keep it on schedule. So the general structure of the podcast is we really want to learn a little bit about you. Then the second part, we're going to get into patent strategy. And then the third thing is we're going to go to the vault and then we'll wrap it up from there. With that in mind, love to hear a little bit more about your background, where you grew up. Did you have any brothers and sisters? So if you wouldn't mind, please put it on a timeline for us. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. So I was born in England. Um, I immigrated when I was 15 when my dad got a job, uh, a job offer at least in North Carolina. So we immigrated from, from England, from North Yorkshire, which is where I was born and grew up. And that was, that was quite a, a formative part of my early years because it took me way out of my comfort zone, right? 15 years of friends and familiar surroundings and everybody talks the same and everybody understands what you say when you speak. <laughs> Coming to a new country that nominally speaks the same language but absolutely does not. Um, and as a result... I think it taught me some of the skills that I've unconsciously relied on uh, in my later years. It sort of taught me the ability to adjust and adapt and, and face my fears of not knowing anybody and being in this culture that I had really no idea about when, when I first came here. So, but that's, that's a, I mean, that's sort of my, my roots. Um, then I had a relatively small family, a, a brother and, and two parents, and we all came over at the same time. But it took me almost 25 years before I became a citizen of the U.S., something I'm actually really proud of. The journey to get to citizenship for someone who emigrates uh, is a journey that I wish every U.S.-born citizen could go through. It teaches you a lot about the country and the, the, um, you know, the, the group of people that we choose to be citizens with. It teaches you about the history, but, but more importantly, for me at least, as part of my journey, the swearing-in ceremony was awesome. I, I think that word is overused so much in our, <laughs> in our society, but it was awesome. There were people from, I want to say, 120 different countries who stood up when their country was called. And the first guy that stood up was one man from Afghanistan. 
in my swearing-in ceremony, and he was being sworn in. And then they went through alphabetically all the countries, and a third of the 1,200 people were from China, and a third were from India. But there were 120 different countries represented. And the MC in the ceremony from the State Department, this is back under, who, who was, I think it was, I want to say it was Bush, um, but the MC spoke, spoke, actually interacted with people in the audience in seven different languages that are not typical. It wasn't French and Spanish. It was Swahili and Japanese and Russian. And it wasn't just a few words he said. He actually had a conversation with folks from these countries in their native tongue. And it was just such a proud moment to say, wow, this is the country that I'm becoming a citizen of today. So anyway, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm now an American, even though I don't talk like it. Thanks for sharing that. There's a lot I want to dive into a little further. If, when you became an American citizen, if you moved when you were around 14 years old, so 25 years later, were you in your mid to late 30s? If that's what the math says, yeah. Honestly, <laughs> at this point, I, I, uh, my, my son reminds me almost daily that I'm getting old, so maybe my, maybe my dates are off. But it was something like that. Uh, it was after my, I met my, uh, my now wife, um, and that Excellent. was within the last 13 years. So something like that. Let's say, let's okay. say early 40s. Let's go with early 40s. All right. So if you can, if you can go back, you're a teenager and living in, it's North Yorkshire? Yes. Did, did I yes. say that like an American? Sorry if I butchered you, that. You, you did. Actually, no. If you'd said Yorkshire, I think I'd hang up on you. But no, it's your <laughs> always, always swallow the shire and it sounds like sure. All right, duly noted. So if you go back and your dad comes home and he says, all right, everybody, dad's got a new job. We're moving to North Carolina. What was that moment like for you? <laughs> well, we'd, we'd had an introduction to North Carolina over the previous two summers. My dad, I think, had a long-term plan that he hadn't shared with us, but in the summer of 79, we spent two weeks in Charlotte, North Carolina, just sort of having fun in America. It was nothing more than, hey, let's go for a quick vacation while dad's working over there. Okay. And then in 1980, we spent six weeks, our full summer break, we spent over in, in America, the same place in Charlotte. And, um, and so at that point, you know, it wasn't com a complete surprise that something was coming. Um, because he was easing us into it. Um, but, but of what I remember of the moment, uh, it was, hey, if that's what you want to do, let's go have an adventure. But there was certainly some discomfort and trepidation as I started to think about, well, what, what does that actually mean? <laughs> yeah. uh, and then, you know, then we came over and, and I, they, I immediately went to school. I went to school two days. They said, this kid should not be in this grade. We're going to bump him up to 11th grade because he's done everything. I mean, I don't know. 14? Yeah. Uh, no. So I was, I had just turned, I turned, uh, let's see, I turned 15 that, that summer. And so, um, so I was in, I graduated high school at 16 because I was young for my grade and then I skipped 10th grade because in England I was already doing calculus at 14. <laughs> So oh, wow. they, didn't, they didn't know what to do with me. So that was good and bad. It was good in the sense that it allowed me 
to continue to accelerate academically. And I wasn't held back very much in terms of what I could handle academically. But socially, I was backwards. I was a 15-year-old hanging out with 17-year-olds who had been in an environment that was much more socially driven than I had been in the first place. So that took a little bit of getting used to. I think I, I, think I caught up socially last year. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Well, no, there's hope for me there. That's encouraging. That's, that's encouraging. <laughs> no, I mean, when I think you're, you're, a, you're a tall guy, where, but when I was 15, I was, I was a pretty small guy. I can't imagine being a junior. Um, had you already kind of sprouted, or were you like the smallest senior in the class, or junior, rather? I was, I was uh, an, an athletically ungifted, scrawny <laughs> kid who, who, you know, wore the big glasses and had the goofy hair. <laughs> and, knew, and knew the and calculus. Ta- and, talked funny, and talked funny to boot. So, you know, uh, it, was, it was an adjustment, let's just say. Well, that, that actually brings me to the next question. So you mentioned, that, and, and that actually puts it more of a picture, paints a picture for me. So some of the skills that you learned from that transition, not only being in a new country, you know, having an accent, speaking a little differently, using different language sometimes, speaking proper English, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, but when you learn some of these skills that ended up serving you in your career and, and later in adult life, what, are, what were some of those skills and how did you learn them? So I think, I think they have to do, you know, I wasn't learning the hard science that I use today or, or particular grammar skills or how to write effective. I mean, it wasn't those kind of skills. Those came later. Um, the kind of things that I'm talking about are tenacity, are um, the ability to deal with circumstances where you don't always fit in, but finding a way to, to deal with that, finding a way to, um, to thrive under circumstances that weren't necessarily geared towards that when you come into a, a brand new environment and are surrounded by a lot of people you don't know who they are and you don't really understand how they think. Um, and it, it taught me the value of knowing myself, knowing what I stand for, knowing for who I am, knowing for what I value and what I don't, and knowing for what I'll put up with and what I won't. And all of those apply even today. You know, we're, we're all driven in, in business to succeed. We're all driven in business to face challenges and to overcome those challenges. And there, there's a whole, you know, bell curve of different ways of facing challenges. And I think ethics comes into it as well. You know, some, some, some are driven by the, the, the ends justify the means. And it doesn't really matter what method you take to get there as long as you get there. I don't know that I'm really driven that way. Um, and I think nice. I learned or, or at least determined early on that I want to find a path that that feels right um, and that can nonetheless achieve great success. Um, because in the end, I, I, I enjoy sleeping well at night. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll, we'll right. come back to this in some of the things that we talk about. 
Um, but it was those kinds of early formative experiences that, that I, you know, I mean, I don't think about this every day, but that I, when I think about your question and reflect, I think that's how I, how I think about answering it. Yeah. Thank you, David. That's an important lesson. It's uh it's not just the outcome we achieve, but sometimes how we achieve it is just as important. It is nice to sleep well at night. <laughs> um, so, you know, I didn't ask, but I, I have a guess. But so your father moved to move the family to Charlotte. What line of work was he in? So he was a <clears throat> polymer chemist. So he was the first first person in his family who who actually went to college, the university. Um, he he was invited <laughs> rather strongly by his father to stay in the family baking business and decided that that was not the path that he would choose. And it was not an easy decision for him, but he was brave um, to essentially to reject um, what all of the family had accepted as okay, which is struggling to get by through a bakery and to want something more for himself and ultimately for the family that he didn't then know, but obviously later gained. And so he went to university and, and, and ultimately uh, got his PhD in polymer chemistry and then was working in a, in a research facility in, in North Yorkshire uh, when he realized that if he, if he were to stay there, that a couple of years later, the place would close and we would end up moving to the northeast part of England, which is extremely industrial. And we were fortunate at that time to live in the foothills of the Moors, which was, you know, obviously not very industrial. And so he saw that coming. And as a result, I think became much more interested in finding a new opportunity, which turned out to be in, in the States. Interesting. Did he have an influence on you when you decided to pursue a degree at, at, at NC State in chemical engineering? Was your father's yeah. interest, like, was that, was that a big impact for you? So, so it was, but, but in the following sense, um, I, if, if you were to look back at my life and the, the big decisions I made early on, it's, it, I, I think of it like bowling. Uh, when you go bowling, and you're not a very good bowler, you put up those guards against the gutters. You know the ones I'm talking about? Absolutely. Where the ball, the ball will never end up in the gutter, and you just sort of bounce off these railings and somehow make it down and knock down some pins. Well, I, I really think of, of my decision on how to go to university and what I was going to study as, as being that kind of a decision process. Well, what, what do you like doing? Well, I like building things, so I guess I should be an engineer. Well, what kind of engineer? Well, my dad's a chemist, so I guess chemist and chemical engineering. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Very and, sound reasoning. There, there isn't too much gap between that story and reality. The good news is, thank goodness, that I chose a very difficult field. And as a result, my chemical engineering degree, it, it didn't teach me skills that I use today. I mean, oh my goodness, you don't want to turn, turn me loose on thermodynamics today. But <laughs> what it taught me was how to learn very difficult subject matter and how to become conversant in difficult principles and then apply them in a way that I could do so effectively. And I, I thrived. I, I, I graduated, I'll never forget this, when I graduated NC State, you know how they have the, the, the cum, cum laude 
magna cum laude, summa cum laude, you know, the different levels of honors. When I graduated, my, uh, my, my uh, lead professor, when I walked up on stage, announced me as uh, David Shaw, all kinds of cum laude. <laughs> <laughs> what an honor. That, that must have been amazing. That was, I had no idea he was going to say it, but uh, his name was Dr. Marsland, and he was, he was fantastic. But anyway, so I ended up learning, and I learned really well, um, and I, I think I, I undertook a, a lifelong passion for learning different subjects and difficult subjects very well so that I can then contribute. And I used to do it in, you know, as an engineer, but I now do it as as a member of a business team, albeit from the perspective of someone with a, with a patent background. Well, that, that's a great segue. So you, you learn how to speak about and study you know, difficult topics through chemical engineering. And at the time, it sounds like they were the guardrails where, you know, as long as I pursue this, I should be just fine. Where was the inspiration to study law and ultimately get into Duke University Law School, one of the best in the country? Yeah, thanks. I, I, think, it, I think it is a good school. It certainly trained me well. Um, so I, I don't want to make a meal out of this, but this, this was the journey in a nutshell. So when I got out and graduated uh, with my engineering degree, the first thing I did was I spent three months in the northernmost part of Australia as part of um, a series of expeditions. It was called Operation Rally. But the idea was you get, you get young folks from 40 or 50 different countries and you bring them together in an environment that they're not familiar with and they focus on community service and scientific exploration. And um, oh, there was one more, I don't remember what it was. But, but the, the, it, was, it was an adventure and it was a way to give back to a local community. So I spent a month on an island in the Torres Strait between the very, very northernmost part of um, Australia and New Guinea on the island of Moa. And we built homes for the indigenous folks there. And that was one of the three months that I spent. But the reason I'm telling you that is that right before I left to go on that trip, I was in the mode that I had been in when I first went to university, which is, well, what do I do now? Well, my dad's a PhD. I guess I'll go get a PhD. So I had interviewed at Berkeley and the University of Minnesota, and I think at Caltech, those three, those three, it turns out, were the top biochemical engineering programs in the country at the time. And I was just on the path to getting a PhD. And during those three months, when I stuck my head out, pulled my head out of the sand and started looking around and thinking about life and thinking about what mattered, I realized, I don't know if I want to go spend another seven years in a lab. Why am I getting a PhD? I really had a lot of introspection of, of just sort of starting to get out of my own shell and realize, sort of seeing some of the big wide world. So as a result... I called up one of the companies I'd interviewed with when they came on campus. It turned out it was Exxon. I said, hey, uh, change your mind. I'm wondering if you still have a job for me because I'd like to go and get some experience in this field in which I just got my degree to figure out whether this is really what I want to do. They said, absolutely. We've got a job down in a refinery in Baton Rouge. How do you feel about that? I said, great. I'll be there when I get back. 
So I, I became a, a chemical engineer called a, a refinery process contact engineer um, for about two and a half years at Exxon in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And my job was to oversee what are called the pipe stills, which is the, the you know, 100 or 200 foot tall distillation columns that processed about, oh, God, it was a ridiculous number of gallons of oil per day. It was in the tens of thousands, if not the hundreds of thousands. Um, and that's what I did. And I did it because I didn't want to become a PhD, but I knew that I didn't want to do this long term. It was just a, a job that would allow me to start to think about what I wanted to do. And the impetus to, to change, to go get an advanced degree, which I knew I always wanted, was the, Val, was the uh, Exxon Valdez hit the reef oh, in Alaska. Yeah. And that destroyed me. I said, my goodness, I am working for a company that is causing such massive environmental damage when I consider myself to be somewhat plugged into being environmentally conscious. And so I said, you know what, it's probably time. I've been here long enough. What do I want to do? And I knew I didn't want to leave behind my, my um, love of technology. So I didn't want to do something that completely divorced myself from from technology and that side of, of knowledge. Um, I enjoyed business, but an MBA didn't feel right for me at the time. But I was part of a leadership organization at NC State, and so I called up my advisor, and we were kicking around some ideas, and he said, you should go see a guy. Turns out he worked in Charlotte. I was then in Baton Rouge. Uh, I won't tell you his name, but... He was in this leadership organization. He is now a patent attorney, and he loves it. And so I went to go see this guy. I remember his name well. I just want to respect privacy. I'm, I'm we sorry. had a conversation, and that in his office is where the angels sang. <laughs> and I, I said, my goodness, I love the idea of becoming a lawyer, but not just any lawyer. I want to be the best dang lawyer that I can be, and I want to do it in a field where I can really contribute something of value. And I thought that was patent law. And so I, I ended up um, applying to a series of schools. Because I had emigrated to North Carolina, I was eligible for a North Carolina scholarship. And so I went to Duke on a 50% scholarship for folks who had ties to North Carolina. And I, so I was a B.S. Womble scholar. <laughs> B.S. Rumble, okay. B.S. Womble, W-O-M-B-E, Womble, yeah. So that was, that was the name of my scholarship at Duke, and I ended up getting a, a law degree there. And the irony is that Duke at the time, they have since remedied this, but their IP was... Let's just say it wasn't a particular area of focus. <laughs> Couldn't, you, got, you went to Duke to get a really good education on how to think and how to communicate, but you didn't go there for a good education on patent law. So, so there, the, the professors, David, sorry if I could just clarify. So when, when you say Duke University's IP, either curriculum and instruction was, was maybe not the top, or was it the university's own internal R&D uh, licensing and patent program. Oh, it was back back in back in the early nineties. I got out in ninety two. There may have been one 
IP course that you could take. It oh. just was not an area of focus in the curriculum. And so for, for, there, were, there were a number of engineers in my law school class, and this was a, a bit of a gripe that we had. And Duke, I am happy to say, has since remedied that in spades. And I understand now they have quite a healthy IP program, not only in, in trademarks and copyright, but also in, in hardcore patent law. Um, so I didn't want that to hold me back. What I wanted was a really strong degree in you know, how to think and how to communicate and how to write, which, which are obviously skills that I would use. But I then went for a two-year clerkship to the Federal Circuit, to the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Federal Circuit. And that court is where I, I sort of cut my teeth on hardcore patent law because the Federal Circuit handles all of the patent appeals that come out of all of the district courts in the, in the states. And so it is essentially the Supreme Court of patent law, albeit the Supreme Court, of course, can review the Federal Circuit decisions, which it does on occasion. That is so interesting. Um, one of my best friends who's a partner at O'Melveny, he went to Duke University, also did a federal clerkship. And when he talks about his career, and uh, we don't have to get into all the details, but he always goes back to being a clerk and how yeah. formative that was. And just, it, I can imagine it just takes the law that you're studying and how to think and read and communicate and write, and you just see it all in practice. Was that yeah. for you, was that a formative experience? It absolutely was, unquestionably. And I was so incredibly fortunate. Again, sort of bumbling through life, I originally signed on for a one-year clerkship because even though I was still quite young, I thought, well, my goodness, I've already worked in industry for three years, and I, I, you know, I just need to go get a job and, and get back into the workforce. And so I can't play around for two years on the, on the court. So I signed up for a one-year clerkship with, with uh, Judge Clevenger, who... Oh my goodness, what an, what an amazing gentleman in so many ways. I was so fortunate to, to have been under his wing for a year, and halfway through that year, I realized the mistake I'd made, which is I, I should have stayed on that court for as long as humanly possible. It was such a formative experience. And so I became Judge Clevenger's first two-year clerk because he was gracious enough to say, well, why, why don't we just, we'll just keep you around for another year. <laughs> so I ended up getting a two-year clerkship through, through the grace of Judge Clevenger. And it was, it was a truly remarkable experience beyond the first year because I became the senior clerk. And, and that is you know, a whole bunch of different experiences beyond what you get just, just, by, just by your first year there. So it was a, a very important part of my formative years as a patent attorney and and then obviously left the court and and went out into private practice and did you see david in judge clevenger did he have some of those tenacity skills and ability to thrive in difficult situations that you were developing you know since moving to the u.s was that something you saw in him as a mentor um I don't know that I saw, you know, the ability to thrive in difficult situations. I don't know that there were particularly difficult situations that we faced. Albeit there were difficult decisions to make, and and we're obviously walk, working very closely with other judges on the court and, and their clerks as well. But what I what I remember most about Judge Clevenger was not only a brilliant 
absolutely brilliant mind who was driven to contributing whatever he could to the law and the court. But I also saw somebody who had a tremendous balance in life. His, the way he enjoyed what he did, the, the love and passion that he had for his little clerk family and the way in which we laughed and enjoyed each other's company and made it a fun environment, the way in which he celebrated life outside of the court. No, he's not, a, you know, he wasn't a, a spring chicken, but he, he just sucked the juice out of life. And he, as a result, I think in many ways affected me as I grow older in ways that I, I really hadn't appreciated, but I, I try to do the same. Um, I am a better attorney, a better partner in business, a better entrepreneur when I am balanced in life. And if that balance gets out of whack, well, then I need to get it back into whack. And on occasion, you get sucked into projects that just require it. And, and when you come from a place of balance, you are able to dive in deep when you need to and come out the other side as healthy as ever. Um, even though those dives sometimes, especially in litigation, can take a couple of years. Um, but I am, I am very fortunate in being able to, you know, I work every day at it, but, but being able to live with some sort of balance in life where it isn't, it, it just doesn't take me down a path where I become less effective. I think, I think that's how I think about it. Now, what a great lesson. If you don't mind me paying you this compliment, in all the years that we've worked together, I've noticed that in you and I've always admired the way you make time for these trips and you travel and you go to these amazing places with your family and you're still easily one of the hardest working people I've ever met. But I see that balance in you and it's no surprise as an entrepreneur, it's not an easy equilibrium to achieve. And it's really, for me, it's really fun to, to hear that that's where some of that balance came from. So I appreciate yeah, you sharing thank that. Thank you, Jeff. No, that's a, that's a great compliment. Um, but it's, I think it's important. And, it, you know, I, if I can help, forget the sort of the stuff we work on together and, and the, you know, all the important things that each of us does in our own companies and our own lives. Um, I have tried over the years to, to help folks who I see are unbalanced sort of realize that there are, there are different ways of going about it. I'll tell you a little, a little anecdote. Name doesn't matter. Very, very accomplished attorney um, who's at the top of his game in a different field. He's not a patent attorney. And we were having dinner one day after working on a, a pretty mission-critical project for a, for a decent-sized client. And I was just asking him about his practice. And one of the things he, he said to me was, well, I, you know, I'm always available. I'm available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. My clients know that they can pick up the phone at any time of day and night, and I will be on the other end. And I looked at him like he was a madman. I said, why? Why do you do that? And, and we got into this very interesting conversation about balance. And I think coming out of that conversation, he had realized that maybe he should start to rethink how he had structured his practice 
because of the kinds of things that we talked about that he had given up as a result of the approach that he was taking. I just shared with him, I said, look, I, I, I am going to be there when my clients need me, but my clients also understand that if they call me at 3 o'clock in the morning, I am hardly going to be very effective. And they also know not to call me at 3 o'clock in the morning because they know I will be available when I say I'll be available, and I won't otherwise. And it, it, it just, I don't know, hopefully it, it helped him. I think it did. But there are, there are a number of different conversations I've had over the years in, in helping I think young attorneys as well as very experienced attorneys and just sort of seeing, hey, maybe, maybe the balance is out of whack a little bit. Um, it, doesn't, it absolutely does not detract from what we can achieve and the successes that we can all benefit from, but it, it makes life a little bit richer. Um, so I yeah, thank you for your comment, Jeff. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, David. And I, I love what you just said because I think for high-achieving people or – professionals that aspire to achieve great things and success, you know, words that you've used like tenacity and drive. They, for me, at least they connect with this seven days a week, 24 seven. And I can imagine that attorney having a sense of pride as he shared that with you. It also feels kind of sad to hear that because as you mentioned, if you're that available for your work, what are you not available for? And, well, that's uh, absolutely right. Yeah, and the takeaway for me is I, I, a lot of what we do, you know, in different ways for a living is to extend longevity and health span. And, you know, I hope that I'm fortunate enough to live a long life. And I'd like to work a lot of those years. And there's a sustainability component where it's a long run. And you can't sprint, yeah. you know, the first five miles of the marathon and hope to have any gas left in the tank. So that's an important yeah, lesson. I, I, I agree with that. And I, it also, Jeff, it reminds me of something we haven't t touched on, but I think this takes us a little bit more into one of the, the more focused purposes of this conversation, which is, you know, the, the patent strategy and stuff. And the, the part that I wanted to touch on very briefly is that I focus solely on med tech, on medical technology. So I'm not a, I'm not a patent attorney who does everything in patent law. What I do is everything in patent law within a relatively narrow field of medical technology. And I chose to do that very, very consciously. When I, when I got out of the court and I went into private practice, you know, you're a young attorney, you're at the bottom of the pile. You know what they talk about, about stuff rolling downhill while well, you're catching it all. <laughs> You get sucked into litigation and you're reviewing documents 20, days, 20 hours a day and you know, you're doing all these things that absolutely are not about balance of life. <laughs> balance right. of life comes later. Right then you're just in the thick of things. And what I realized very quickly is that I did not enjoy coming into a team as a hired gun, solving the very narrow problem that they hired me to solve in this, in part of this big legal team. And then we move on to the next fight right. because I always caught myself thinking about, well, wait a second, because you, it's very, very intense experience when you go into litigation. And as a result, I was getting to know the engineers and the companies that we were representing very well. And I was understanding about what they were concerned about technology wise and what they were working on and what they were trying to solve. And, and then all of a sudden, I don't get paid to think about that anymore because the case is over and we've moved on to somebody else. And I always, always thought about, well, I wonder how 
Richard solved that problem. I wonder if they got over that technical challenge. I wonder if the technology was able to get into clinical trial. I always wanted to know about where the business was going. And I realized very quickly that I like to build things. And I'm not talking about sheds, although I build those as well. I'm talking about viable businesses. David? With, yes. Okay. Sorry, you cut out for a second. All right, you're back. Oh, I'm sorry. I like to build things. And I, I, and I said I'm not talking just about sheds, which I also build, but <laughs> I'm talking about viable businesses. And I'm talking about technologies that can benefit patients, not just me too's, but technologies that change the practice of medicine to benefit the patient and improve the quality of life of the people that we all ultimately care about in this particular field, which is the end user. Our neighbors, our family, our friends, folks who are in need of medical technology to improve their lives. And I get an immense amount of satisfaction about doing what I do in the very small area that I do it that permits the technologies that I work on ultimately to succeed in the hands of the brilliant people who take it into clinical trial and beyond. If I can do my piece, protect it, protect it so that others don't steal it, protect it so that others don't try to stop it from ever being, ever seeing the light of day. Um, protect it by helping others see the value in it so that they fund it. You know, I'm talking about patent prosecution. I'm talking about FTO and defending other people's patents. I'm talking about due diligence. If I can do the part that I do, then the companies that I work on succeed and ultimately benefit the lives of patients for the better. And that's, that's what drives me. The rest of it is fun. <laughs> All of the strategy, all of the, the in-the-trenches work, all of the late nights thinking about how do we solve this problem, that's the fun piece. But the real gratification comes from um, contributing in the way that I can and working with incredibly smart, driven, tenacious business teams and helping them succeed. And that's a, that's a real, it, it just, it, it gets me up in the morning and gets me excited about each day. And your team is no, no, um, is, is an example of that. It's no exception, you. right? You know the folks on your team. You know how hard you've worked to get where you're going. And the journey is by far no means over. Um, but in any way, I wanted to give that context because everything that I talk about in terms of the specific subject matter that you introduced at the beginning of this conversation, I look at through that, that subject matter lens of being concentrated within the, the medical technology field. I'm really glad you shared that. And thanks for the context. And as we transition to the kind of do's and don'ts or patent strategy 101 for the healthcare entrepreneur, could you just speak for a couple minutes? Um, once you realized that you didn't want to be a hired gun and you took your first role in the industry, you know, two of the most game-changing technology-driven companies, I would say, in the last 20 years in Intuitive Surgical and Kaifon, where we met. Uh, can you speak to, just for a few minutes, what you did there, what you thought of that experience, and, and how that led to you now having your own practice, uh, partnering with many healthcare companies? Yeah, so, so th th this is dangerous, Jeff, because you know I can talk for way longer than two minutes. So let I can me, listen let me, forever. <laughs> <laughs> let, 
let me see if I can bring those who are listening into how I got to where I got to. Um, because obviously now I work, I work for myself as a consultant and I support, um, gosh, over the last 10 years, it's, it's over two dozen different, different startup companies. Um, but I originally made the leap from private practice. I worked at the law firm of Fish and Richardson for about four and a half years. And very early in that process, because I knew that I wanted to go in-house, I took on a patent prosecution docket as well as a litigation docket as well as a diligence docket, sort of F FTO type work. And at that time, I believe I was the only person to have all of that within the firm. You had litigation specialists, you had patent prosecution specialists, and I said, hey, I wanna do both. And it made it very busy for a while, but I wanted to learn the skills, the, the mechanical skills of prosecuting a patent. I wanted to learn how to destroy a patent, which I learned in litigation because the more I learned how to destroy a patent, the better I could do the job of writing a patent that would survive the challenges that would come if it turned out the patent became valuable. And so I then took a leap into private uh, outside of private practice into a little startup company, a little medical startup company, was working on a technology to treat stroke. And within about a year, I had done everything that I needed to do to set that company up for sale done all the FTO work, I'd actually written opinions, we prosecuted the patents to protect it, we'd done, we'd done FTO searches, I'd done everything to package that up, and the technology failed. It did not succeed. And right at that time, it, it turns out it failed about, about three months after I left, but I could see that there were technological challenges that I would become a bit of a passenger because there wasn't so much for me to do anymore. If they go back to the drawing board, right. all of this work's right. already been done. So right around that time, Intuitive Surgical was looking for a chief patent counsel. And this was back when Intuitive was, was I believe it was still a private company. It was, a, you know, it was two bucks a share for options. <laughs> it, was, it was just trying to survive. And I hired on as their chief patent counsel. It was an incredible opportunity. It was one of the most intense professional experiences I have ever had. Within three months of joining Intuitive, we had filed five interferences against uh, another company that we ended up buying, but it, it was the, you know, the robotic surgery patent wars, if you will, between Intuitive Surgical and a company called Computer Motion. We filed five interferences I wrote personally a set of claims in a continuation application um, that I prosecuted with the help of our outside counsel through to issuance, on which we then sued Computer Motion, got a jury verdict of infringement and validity, and went to the phase of trying to get an injunction against them. I personally wrote the claims. We prosecuted the claims along with our patent prosecution outside counsel to issuance, those claims issued, we then sued Computer Motion and we asserted those claims successfully through a successful jury verdict of validity and infringement and we were then into the injunction phase against Computer Motion. I took the raw materials of what Intuitive had, had filed long ago and ended up going through the full gamut of, of patent activities 
uh, using the skills that I had learned at Fish. And that was one piece of the battle against Computer Motion. Computer Motion ended up suing us on 10 of their patents. We had fights in Europe. And I was responsible for all of this. Long story short, because Intuitive was, when I joined, was in a position of essentially inventing the technology of robotic surgery. But until that point, not having done a very good job at all of prosecuting its inventions through successfully to actually own the patents that mattered. We took the company from that point all the way through to where Computer Motion and Intuitive finally said, does it really make sense for us to fight here? Because Computer Motion, you now understand that you cannot own this space, even though you have all these patents, because you're losing the interferences and you're starting to lose your patents. And as a result, the two companies got together, and the rest is history. It was an amazing journey to have been on for five years that I was chief patent counsel and corporate counsel at, at Intuitive with, as I said, the brightest guys that I have ever met. I mean, these were world-class, world-recognized robotics engineers that I was supposed to be able to converse with, and not only converse with, but understand and critique and point out the flaws of their reasoning and make for a product in the court and patent office system that allowed us to gain traction and ultimately put the, put the company in a position where it could own the market space. And that wasn't easy, but my goodness, it was, it was a hell of a journey. That must have been amazing. You're, you're basically running point from a patent litigation standpoint of the equivalent of the Cold War of robotic surgery. <laughs> Yeah, and it was, you know what, it ended up being a win for everybody. Litigation is, is absolutely not something to be celebrated. It is a business tool. It is something that you don't pull out of the drawer first. It is something that you have to go into very, very carefully with a tremendous amount of forethought and, and recognizing that I don't care how well the litigation might go in the early stages, in the end, there is huge business risk and making sure that the business understands the risks and understands the strategy and you know goes in with its eyes open and then you work like hell obviously for a successful outcome if that's the path that, that ultimately is right um, but it does have its benefits especially when you you are representing a small company and the big companies are trying to kill it right. and unfortunately i've been involved in in a few bet the company litigations over the years, and and the good news is that my companies have fared quite well, so I'm so I'm proud of that. There is there is one very small anecdote that I will share with you. I won't I won't tell you the person who said this, um, but they they paid me a, a tremendous compliment after after a particularly successful day in the fight um, on Intuitive's part, and. Uh, and after he said this, told me this compliment and told me what it meant to the company to have achieved what we just achieved, uh, I actually cried. Wow. And first time in my life professionally that I had. And it wasn't through happiness and it wasn't through sadness. It was through realizing that the stress that I had been carrying for so many years had finally paid off. And it was just a, a very natural reaction. But in reflecting on that moment many, many decades later, um, it is a sign of an extremely rich professional journey, I think, to have laughed and experienced true joy 
and the, the depths of sadness and cried and experienced a full range of human emotions. If you can do that in a career, I, I, I think you're probably not doing anything wrong. But it is truly life enriching to have experienced all of that in life and also in my professional career. But it was it's just a just a small maybe it's a silly anecdote. <laughs> but it's it, it, uh, it's something I certainly remember, let's put it that way. What I love about that, David, is many of our listeners, I mean, everyone's at different stages of their lives and careers, but in this discussion alone, you know, we're tackling big concepts like how do you have balance? How can you be the, the judge, that, Judge Clevenger, that sucks all the, the, the fun and, and joy and love out of, the, out of life so that he can, you know, be so much fun to be around? While also, because I think this is the difficult side of the coin, is What's, what's not mentioned there is, you know, taking on four dockets in you know, yeah, Fisk Rich, Richardson. And there was, a, there was a period of tremendous investment in yourself and your skills and your abilities to then, which was not easy. And as you mentioned, that wasn't the time to have balance of life. And, but by putting in that effort early, you could then tackle some really important challenges armed with skills that you had earned not at a time of balance. And then only because of that investment of energy and time and focus, could you again experience this full range of emotions that only I believe people that try to do really great things that are very hard and difficult ever really know that degree of satisfaction. And I think that's difficult if you're in your twenties trying to start off your career. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, Jeff. And it's also, let me just throw out another anecdote, because I, I truly, truly believe this. Um, patent law, let me talk about prosecution for a moment, right? Patent prosecution, you file an application, you work with the patent, um, let's just focus on the U.S. Patent Office. You work with the Patent Office, you go back and forth and trade papers and, and, and do all these things, and, and ultimately you try to get a patent. And hopefully that patent um, is valuable. I'll tell you the story. I want to come back to that point in a minute um, about getting a valuable patent. But I am absolutely 100% convinced that patent prosecution, when you set aside all of the, the, the rules that you need to abide by and all of the particular disclosures and the way in which, you know, the mechanics of how claims should be written, I am absolutely 100% convinced that it is simply human relations. How do you help that examiner understand what you're trying to say? How do you help that examiner get excited about what you're saying? How do you help that examiner buy into the story that you're so excited about and you hope that he or she goes home to their spouse at night and says, boy, let me tell you about something that happened today. There's such a really, really neat little product and this, this little company. How do you get them excited about what you're excited about? That, to me, is patent prosecution. And hmm. it's, a, it's a little bit different way of thinking about it than the way in which I learned it. Because the way I learned it, I learned it from people who almost didn't like human interaction. They thought it was just, you just bat papers back and forth, back and forth, and you have a certain way of writing the paper, and it's very arcane, and it's very mechanical, and oftentimes it's very ineffective. 
And when I started doing this, and I was so excited about what I was working on, I said, my God, I want to get that other person who's thinking about whether to grant me a patent excited about it as well. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to go talk to them. I'm going to go sit in their office, and I'm going to tell them why I'm so excited. I'm going to show them the technology. I'm going to tell them what we're working on. I'm going to tell them what we're worried about in terms of what the company is trying to achieve. And then I'm going to tell them how what I'm working on in, in terms of a particular application relates to what I'm so excited about in the business. And that has had real success. When you can, and I've experienced this several times, when you have an interview with an examiner where they start to understand this is a real company, it's a real technology, it has a, a way to benefit patients like really benefit their quality of life and you get to the moment where they say, wow, that's really interesting. You shift them from how am I going to be an obstacle to preventing this company from getting its patent to how can we help you get this patent? And I am starting to lose track of the number of times in interviews when we simply talk with them and help them understand what's happening, where the examiner starts to suggest ways in which we might improve the claims and improve our protection of the technology and avoid a potential infringement headache, where the examiner becomes part of the team rather than an obstacle that you communicate with through somewhat staid writing. And it's, it's a, I don't know if I can describe it any differently, and maybe the way I've described it isn't very effective, but, but I truly believe there is a, 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 a diamond in the rough once you realize these are just folks trying to do their jobs as well. And they would love to get excited about something. So let's give them something to be excited about, even if it's in patent prosecution. Right. It's just it's a different way of approaching it that, that I, I have found quite effective. Well, I think your passion and why that's so effective, you know, it may goes back to the fact that you get so much satisfaction out of helping technologies that are going to serve all these patients succeed, whether it's going to clinical trial or getting through diligence for, to raise the next round. I do think it has a lot to do with how satisfying that is for you. And I recall distinctly, I, I mean, it was 2010 or 2011 when you shared that advice with me specifically to our patent portfolio. And so for the listeners, you know, it's a great example of somebody that practices what he preaches. And <laughs> I, I love from like a pattern recognition standpoint that to me, the best FDA regulatory consultants, they always take the same tact because we have something in med tech and life science that's so special and unique in that, the solutions we're building, they're to, they're to like drastically improve people's lives and reduce suffering and pain. And it's so easy for anyone to connect to, whether it's a patent prosecutor or it's a regulatory, you know, an FDA examiner. And, you know, that's a, it's a really important takeaway. So I want to be respectful of your time, David. I know it's Saturday morning and there's much to do. Um, if you were to say, to the startup, maybe they've raised a seed round and patents are gonna be a big part of them protecting and building value. 
what are the maybe top three things they should do? And what are some common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs make early in the entrepreneurial startup journey? That's a, we, we can, we can definitely talk about it, Jeff. Also, I, I have to tell you, I am, I'm really enjoying chatting with you on this. So let's go as long as you would like to. Oh, and for the listeners, right. when, okay. I, when I first, when I first got on the call and said, this is my favorite thing to do on Saturday morning, what they didn't have the benefit of is our short conversation before we got on the phone when, when I was talking about watching the Premier League. So that is my favorite thing to do on Saturday morning. But this is, <laughs> this is now turned into a close second. Um, so in response, to your, in response to your question, let's, let, me, let me come at it this way. So the first answer I'm going to give you is to comment on the role that I now play for all of the companies that I represent. And, and it's, it is 98% medical device startup companies that I work for. The reason I think my business model works is because of a few things. So the first is, when you're a little medical technology company, it oftentimes is the case that you are inventing into a space that is already occupied in some way, shape, or form. There are other companies with potentially fundamental patents or patents that are close to what you're doing. You've got a better mousetrap, but it's, it's not like you're inventing into unpopulated space. If that's the case, then getting sophisticated quickly about IP early on can save so many headaches later. Now, what do I mean by that? When you're a little startup company, oftentimes you can't afford an in-house counsel. You also, if you can afford an in-house counsel, you can afford somebody who maybe has a couple of years of experience. And they don't have the experience of decades of of fighting the fights and, and going through the, 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 the different challenges that an experienced IP counsel does. And so you bring in somebody and they say, hey, we've got in-house patent counsel, or maybe they don't have in-house patent counsel, they only have external patent counsel. And that leaves that company exposed. If they have an inexperienced in-house counsel, that counsel isn't going to see half the things that he or she should see. It's not through lack of effort, it's simply through lack of experience. If they only have outside pro prosecution counsel or outside counsel, the problem is that outside counsel get paid to do what they are asked to do. It is an exceedingly rare outside counsel who is proactive, who starts asking questions in areas where they're not paid to ask questions in order to figure out the bigger picture and issue spot for the company to get ahead of headaches that they themselves will be hired to solve once the headaches occur. You want counsel to be proactive. You need counsel to get ahead of these companies that are going at an extremely fast clip and essentially clear the space that they can invent into and bring their technology into so that they are not left with a huge headache that becomes so expensive when, for example, they, they are infringing other patents to which they don't have an answer, or other companies see the value they have created and immediately, immediately 
knock their technology off. And the patents have lagged the development of the technology so badly that they don't have the patents issued to be able to protect what they've created and they lose it before they ever really owned it. And so my business is, is focused on providing little companies who can't afford in-house counsel the ability to work with very experienced quasi-in-house counsel. I don't go in as an employee, I go in as a consultant. But I also charge a fraction of what some of these outside counsel charge. And I take equity in the company to bear risk with the company. I don't like getting paid if I don't have skin in the game and I bear the same risk as the company, which is why I operate under that type of a, of a, of a business plan. But what it provides the little company now is somebody who unfortunately bears the scars of the experiences that has given me at least some wisdom in this space to be able to start to see what this little company needs. And there are absolutely situations that present themselves over and over and over uh, in these little companies, but there are also unique sets of circumstances that come up in almost every single company, which makes this so interesting. So with that in mind, what's one of the common mistakes that these companies make? They don't have somebody experienced who is proactive. That's the first one. Okay. Get that person. And the problem with having a pure outside counsel who isn't invested in the in-house counsel role, which is the bridge that I span, is that they don't know half of what's going on in the company but nonetheless could have IP impact. The second one is, I've already alluded to it, the IP protection, the patent protection, must track and, in my view, stay ahead of the development path for the technology itself. If the company comes along and it's got a really good mousetrap and it's a 510K product and they can get through with a minor clinical trial, and it's not a PMA where they'll be stuck with the FDA for a decade, and they get onto the market, and the IP guys have sort of said, well, we, we filed an application. Well, where is it? Where's the patent? Well, it's still in queue. It'll be picked up in about a year. Well, we need to protect it right now because people are copying us right now. Well, I'm sorry. Geez, you know, the patent office is slow. Well, that isn't good enough. <laughs> we have to find ways of protecting the company as quickly as possible to make sure, and, and, and within the context of the company's evolution, to make sure that when the company sits up and says, I need to protect what I've just done because other people are stealing it, you can say, well, that's great. We're, we've already got this and that and the other, and we've stayed ahead of it. So the good news is that there are many more tools now that you can use to try to do that. One of the examples is that, what is it, the track one, the fast track, it's the way in which you can push through patent prosecution quickly, at least in the U.S. office. And then you have the patent prosecution highway abroad, albeit OUS prosecution, prosecution outside the US, is typically slower. But the third mistake I think folks make is, okay, uh, well, we just need to use the, this track one, this fast track, we just need to push patents through. And using the fast track within the patent office is a massive double-edged sword in the following sense. Fast track doesn't fast track you to a patent. 
it can just as easily fast track you to a final rejection of your patent. It simply accelerates the prosecution process. And so the challenge is, well, how do you use the tools that the patent office has given us to fast track to an issuance and not to a final rejection? That's all in the <laughs> sort of the, that's our that's what that's what we do every day. But but there's a lot of strategy associated with how do you do it? And the highest level lesson there, I think, is you have to make sure that you don't try to bite off such broad claims within a fast track application that the patent examiner is uncomfortable with the fact that that what you're trying to push through is actually patentable to you. But you also don't want to go so narrow that you end up with a patent that frankly isn't worth the paper it's printed on. Right. Getting commercially relevant protection, even though it's not quite as broad as what you otherwise otherwise might be able to gain through later prosecution, I think is a sweet spot that all companies should aim for, and they oftentimes don't do that. I learned that lesson very, very early, uh, about a year into Fish and Richardson. A client came in, and they said, I've got a patent. It was a golf club patent, of all things, when I, when I did golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> he, came, he came in with a golf club, and he came in with his patent. He said, I've got a patent, and this golf club is from a major manufacturer, and that golf club has stolen my idea. I want to know what I can do. And so I was, I was the junior guy on, on, the, on the, the team, and it turned out nobody else could make the meeting. And so I went in there, and this was my first one-on-one -on -one meeting with the client, and I looked at the patent. And I have a feeling I knew why no one else made the meeting, because the message to the client was, your patent doesn't cover your invention. The way the patent was prosecuted, you can't go after the company that stole your idea. And it was a classic example of a patent prosecutor saying, I need to get a patent without understanding what was valuable, what they were really trying to protect, what ultimately would, pro would prove valuable to protecting the true idea. They just got a patent. And I am positive the person that prosecuted that patent felt really good. Yay, we got the client a patent. But the patent was worthless. Worthless. So I learned that lesson very early. That's interesting. Uh, I, I, I learned that lesson too on the client side. And I think uh, if I could, a couple of the things that you mentioned, you know, in, in the early days of a startup, capital's scarce. You've invented something that you think has value. So, you know, I sought outside counsel, what's it gonna cost to file a provisional patent or a non-provisional patent? And I think very responsibly, the, the attorney at this firm said, well, you could be less expensive to do a provisional, then you have a year, you can continue to develop it, and then when you convert it to a non-provisional, you can pull in some of the updates of the R&D development. So I said, that sounds great. We did just that, we start prosecuting, and the prosecution phase where you, you mentioned in the context of the fast track, if you start too broad, um, you get narrowed pretty quickly, and this concept of outside counsel is going to do what you ask them to do. They're going to be mindful of billing for their time because that's their firm's business model, and they're, in, they're incentivized to bill for the firm and provide value. And at the end of it, and we were fortunate 
to be you know, working with you at that point. By the end of it, though, you could end up with uh, an issued patent that you feel really great about. But what I've been taught is you got to go to that final page. Don't get too caught up on the, the pretty drawing on the cover. What is, what is allowed, you know, what has actually been issued. And if someone's not watching your back and making sure that what the ultimate claim that's allowed and is issued, if that doesn't cover your commercial embodiment or where the space that you want to protect, you, like you said, David, you really don't have much. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there are, I, I agree with you. Um, and I, I can't, I can't tell you the number of times, you know, since that first lesson with the golf club that I have been asked to come into a company to sort of take, Hey, take a look at what we've got. And you look at what they've got and you have to have a very tough conversation to say you have invested tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in a portfolio that is essentially worthless. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you what you haven't done. Let me tell you why the claims that you have are so easy to design around. Let me tell you why you can't now go after the company that's eating your lunch in the marketplace because whoever was trying to pay attention to this wasn't paying attention. And it's very hard when you have that conversation with, with a CEO. It's very hard when you have the conversation with the engineers. And the engineers say, well, wait a second, but we've got a patent on this. And you say, well, yes, but <laughs> having a patent isn't sufficient oftentimes. Um, anyway, there are a couple of other points that I want to raise that I think fall into the category of being responsive to your question, Jeff. And the next one is diligence. So these little companies are oftentimes charged with raising funds. And oftentimes, Patent Prosecution Council, even other councils, don't plug into sort of the lifeblood of the process of funding the company to allow it to continue to do what it's doing. And here's why that's a big mistake. So council comes in and says, well, I've heard of this fast track thing, and we should be getting a fast track patent to try to get an application that's ahead of your technology development. And so we need to file that fast track. Okay, we'll go for it. And they end up fast-tracking to a final rejection the week before you go out into diligence to raise $20 million. Yeah. <laughs> it is a nightmare scenario. And I've seen it so many times where there is a disconnect between the business's needs in terms of funding and timing and the diligence process associated with that. Maybe, maybe not just fundraising, but an acquisition or, or an exit. And... The, the, the patent people who have their head down, just plowing along, sort of, they're just doing their thing and they forget how relevant what they're doing is to the much bigger picture. So I've seen that mistake quite a bit, which is the disconnect between the business's needs and what's going on in the IP realm. Um, I've also seen this mistake quite often. You alluded to it already. You just gave me the segue, the, the, the issue of filing a provisional application. So oftentimes you'll hear advice where, oh, we can file a provisional application and we've got 12 months to convert it. It's a great way of getting a fast date. Let's just go get the date. So they file a, a provisional application. Sometimes it's a, you know, a mishmash of a shoebox of documents with a couple of paragraphs in the middle of it. And they say, wow, this is great. I now have a date. I have a provisional application. And then the company goes to sleep for 12 months. And then the 12-month conversion date comes up, and he says, oh, wow, I've got to convert my provisional application. Well, what do I do now? And by the time they realize 
that the provisional they filed doesn't satisfy the requirements of being able to attribute that early filing date to what they ultimately claim, they've lost 12 months and that provisional becomes essentially worthless because the only way in which a provisional provides real value is if you can attribute that early provisional date to the claims that you ultimately prosecute. And so the right answer is, okay, go get a date on that provisional application. Now, let's work our butts off to think of another provisional and another provisional, and let's keep filing and filing and filing. And oh, by the way, why are we waiting 12 months to convert it to a non-provisional? Why aren't we doing that now? Why are we taking a 12-month holiday, guys? There's, there's often times this sense of, well, we've got a provisional, and so we're good. We'll just pick it up in 12 months, and that's a massive mistake when you are in a first-to-file regime where other companies may also be much more diligent about filing their ideas and converting their ideas, and you won't know that they're doing it until 18 months later. So now that we are in this first-to-file you know, race to the patent office kind of context, you don't win the race just by getting a provisional on file. But I think a lot of companies think you do. Right, and that um, goes back to the having patent counsel that's proactive, that is, is looking at, all right, we did, this, we did this provisional six to seven months ago. We should be thinking not only about converting this and making sure that what we ultimately want the non-provisional to include we can actually attribute it to this earlier priority date from the original provisional. And by the way, guys, what else do we have? <laughs> it looks like there's yeah. some interesting things you're tinkering on. Do we have another provisional just to keep the portfolio growing? For sure. For sure. There's a, there's a company that I just started representing. They had a provisional on file. They filed it a month before I got involved. In the, the two months that I've been involved, we filed two more provisionals and converted all of them into a single non-provisional. And there are reasons that we don't need to go into, but that's an example of converting a provisional within three months. And we actually rolled three provisional applications up into one. And the reason that we wanted to get date after date after date is because we think we're in a race with another company. I see. So it's, it's, just, it's just, you know, when do you do that and when don't you do it? How do you balance the financial needs of the company and the budget that you have, which is always a constraint, with what the, the company ultimately is going to realize it needs two or three years down the road when you look at the business and you see how quickly the technology is developing. It's all, you know, you put it in the pot and mix it around and, and then determine what the best strategy is for that particular client. Yeah, this, I mean, so, so, what's so impactful because so many of the people listening, you know, when, you, when you're doing a seed round and you're trying to get enough capital to, you know, to get a product actually developed, there's typically an expectation that some patent has been filed, certainly in med tech, and life science and this insight that David's sharing about the last thing we want as entrepreneurs when going out for a series A, maybe your first institutional round is because at that point we're, we're selling hope. We're selling the, the ability to overcome a lot of odds and, and get a successful outcome. The idea of having a fast track final rejection <laughs> a month before starting that process or even worse in the middle of diligence, maybe when you have a term sheet, uh, gosh, I can't imagine that how, how challenging that would be. So that's, that's solid gold, David. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, 
it just it's just what makes this this job interesting. I mean, look, I'll give you one more example. I think you asked for three. I think I'm I'm going to end up giving you six. But here's another one. So you've got a high-powered engineering team that's developing a product, or they have a product and they want to add a di an additional feature. And so one of those folks goes out and they do a patent search and they read all the patents of the, of other people and they go, wow, you know. Look at all these different things that are owned and taken, and we can't do that, and we can't do that. And so they end up stifling the innovation process as a result of looking at patents of other folks. And I personally think that is a mistake. And I think it's a mistake for a number of reasons, but I'll give you two right now. One is just because I have a patent doesn't mean I can do anything with it. It may be completely invalid. It may not be enforceable. I may not have paid the maintenance fees. It may be available for license. It, there are so many different solutions to a technology that nominally has a patent elsewhere that covers it, that to have an engineer close the door to thinking about something because he or she sees it in someone else's patent, I think really stifles true innovation and may close off pathways that otherwise could be exceedingly fruitful and valuable for the company whose engineer is acting that way. So when, when, I, when I get involved in something like that, um, I, I try to help folks understand that they, that may not be the right way to view what patents out there are, are really telling you when it comes to, to innovation. And that, that brings me to my, to my final point, which is this. There are absolutely some medical companies out there that, that don't need folks like me. They're inventing into a brand new space. They've got capable patent counsel who can write applications. They've got plenty of time to develop their technology. Things are going great. I don't represent those companies. I represent two kinds of companies. The first kind of company is the ones that I only represented for a while, which is when things are not going well. They've got a bunch of patent counsel and the job isn't getting done. They can't get the issue patents. They've got a huge FTO issue. They can't make the case for why the uh, diligence should be successful. And they need somebody better. Those are usually the ones that I get involved in when things aren't going right. That's how I, I that, that's a majority of the businesses that I used to represent. I now represent a lot of businesses from serial entrepreneurs who pulled me in originally when there was a problem and they saw how we solved it. And then they say, wow, for my next company, I don't want to go through that again. So now I need you to lead this so that we don't go through it again. Those are the sort of the two subsets of what I do. And what I don't do is they say, oh, I want, I want to file an application on this. I said, great, I'll, I'll work with you. Have someone else draft it. You'll work with your outside counsel like you normally do. And what I will do on that particular application is make sure that the disclosure and the claims are such that they will provide value to us, and then we will strategize about how we're going to get it through. But I, I don't remember the last time I wrote an application I focus on the claims, and I focus on pushing those through in a way that ends up with protection the company needs. And then on the FTO piece, I spend a ton of time on that because it is a company I'm representing right now. Get, got pulled in late, but has a very, very good technology, 
about to launch it, and it gets slapped with a patent lawsuit on things that, that were certainly publicly available. What a, what a tragedy that is. Um, so it's, it, it really, really pays to get ahead of these things. And then in the, in the diligence context, when you're actually defending a company about why you can protect what you have and why no one else is going to be able to come in and materially disrupt it, that is, I, I think it comes down to knowing the subject matter exceedingly well. You go into a diligence about as prepared as you possibly can be, because if you don't and you lose credibility as the company's counsel, sitting across the table from other counsel who are paid to find the holes, if you can't maintain credibility in how you've thought about it, what you've done to address it, and what you consciously chose not to do, well, that credibility turns into zeros that may get knocked off the check. And I don't want to be the, the person who causes that. <laughs> so preparing for, a, for an IP diligence to me is a very, very serious undertaking and is really beneficial when whoever's defending the company has lived through, you know, they don't just get pulled in and said, oh, we've got a diligence in a week, I'd like you to do it. They've lived that development of the company and its IP portfolio and all of the mines that it's avoided and the trenches that it's jumped over and all of the successes that it's achieved. They can talk that story sufficiently where it holds together. Uh, and that ultimately, of course, should end up in either a funding or an acquisition. So. I will, I will be quiet there, Jeff. I, as I said, I can talk about this stuff for a while. I really enjoy this conversation. I am, I'm, I'm loving it. Thank you so much. And I was thinking about what you were saying about the two types of clients and a serial entrepreneur that doesn't want to get into a difficult patent situation. The, the other side of your business model where you're not writing patent applications, but you're consulting with outside counsel, very competent outside counsel, but just like you, you know, for the company, they don't necessarily, you know, for, for something like developing a patent application, which can be time consuming and technical, which clearly you could do extremely well, they can go with a more junior outside counsel. And the benefit that I've seen is, and then the outside counsel, whether it be an associate or a partner, they actually get to benefit from all your experience and as you mentioned, you know, scars that you've earned in, in the battles. And I, I, I mean, I've seen it at Providence, that partnership has really been, not only benefited the company, but I think it benefits the outside counsel that we work with. And I think it's a really rich model. You're very kind. Um, I certainly enjoy working with, with really bright people and we can all learn from each other. But I just I come at it from a different perspective oftentimes. So in yes. any event, Jeff, what, what else? All right. Well, I think uh, in, in the, to the, for the third part, we're going to go to the vault. So this is, again, kind of a rapid fire. I'm going to ask you four questions. And uh, first thing that comes to mind. And so are you ready to go to the vault? <laughs> I suppose so. All right. All right. So in the last year, David, what book, movie, it could have been a blog post, song, even a piece of art, did you experience that really had an impact on you and you've given it a lot of thought ever since. This one, this one to me is easy. Um, and it's a book and it's called finding ultra spy guy called rich roll. 
and I'll just I'll tell you a little bit about it, but I'll tell you why it was so impactful to me. Um, it's a story about a guy who ultimately, Rich Roll now, is one of the most obscene endurance athletes, obscene in a good way. I mean, unbelievably, outstandingly capable by, by that word, uh, capable endurance athletes in the world. And he has done it on a plant-based diet. And people didn't believe it was even possible. Uh, I've, I've done a few endurance events over the years. And um, when, you, when you become familiar with the, the, the exercise regime and, and the nutrition associated with it, no, no, very few people, let's say, would believe that you can achieve the kinds of things that Rich has achieved through a plant-based diet. That mentality is changing, but nonetheless. The, the finding ultra, the ultra refers to an ultraman, which is a ridiculous series of events over three days. I think it's something like an open water swim of six miles and a bike ride of 190 and maybe a run of a couple of marathons in, into the 50 miles. Um, and he, he was significantly competitive in this. Now, it wasn't impactful because Rich Roll has a, a, a plant-based diet and does endurance events. It was impactful because of the human story that he told. And in a nutshell, it is that he was, he was a God-given athlete, had unbelievable skill in the water as a swimmer, and he threw it all away and became, you know, in my view, I apologize for this, but a pretty despicable human being as a result of alcohol. He lost his way. And he lost it in just about every way you can possibly lose it. And then he found his way again. And it, it's, this, it's this story of redemption, of not only sort of getting back to be the, you know, the, the kind of person he was. And I don't think the kind of person he was is the kind of person even Rich Roll values today. But he became a much, much better version of himself. And it wasn't just the alcohol addiction that he was able to shake, but he started becoming much more aware of his, of, his, of his fellow human beings and how to be a better member of society and how to give back and how to benefit other people, not just himself. And it, it really is a, is a remarkable story that at the highest level, yeah, it's a story about a guy who used to drink and then he started eating plants and now he can run a lot, which really <laughs> isn't interesting. But at a much deeper level, it is a story about how each and every one of us has difficulties and challenges and issues that hold us back from being better versions of ourselves. And it's a story about how none of those things are permanent and how every one of those things has an answer if we are willing to put in the effort and take the journey that is oftentimes exceedingly difficult in order to achieve our true potential. And it is a remarkable book. Um, it really is. It, was, it surprised me in the sense that I don't know the person who bought it me really realized the much, much deeper meaning. I think they bought it for me because, hey, here's a, here's a diet you could try, and hey, I know you like running a lot. <laughs> but but that, that book... Uh, really surprised me and, and uh, really has caused me to think deeply about some of my own 
difficulties and challenges and issues. So that, that's how I'd answer that one. Great. Thank you. All right. So next question, other than your parents, who is someone who saw your potential, took an interest in your development and has had an important influence on your career and life? Um, I would answer that in different ways based on the different stages in life. Um, so without, you know, spending another hour on this, um, one of the folks was a, was a gentleman at my undergraduate school, a guy by the name of Gerald Hawkins, who has, who has since passed, but he led the leadership organization at NC State that I, that I alluded to when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up after being an engineer. Um, and he, he really pushed me to start to think for myself, to really start to think about what my value system was and what I stood for and, and how I wanted, what I wanted to fit in with and what I wanted to change. And, a lot of maturing. Um, I, when I met when I met Gerald, I was physically young, but mentally younger. And and I I really appreciate the way in which he steered me in those in those formative university years. That's how I would answer that one. Excellent, great. All right, next question: In your professional life, what is one online tool? Could be a piece of software, an app that you use almost every day in your work and can't imagine not having it? <laughs> well, uh, Jeff, you've, you've known me for a long time. You should know that I don't app. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I am, I am a, a what's the word, a, a Luddite. <laughs> if my computer turns on, it's a good day. If it doesn't, I typically yell, the name of my older boy who will come running and try to figure out what's wrong. So I am technologically challenged. I, I, I use, I communicate with email. I use the phone. I prefer in person much better. It goes back to the human dynamic and the value of human interaction. Um, and, and the fact that you sent me a text this morning, it's a miracle that I even knew you did so. <laughs> well, you did it. So, all right, on that, and that, and that, I completely understand that. And on your phone, what email app do you use? On my phone? I'm not even sure I understand that question. I have, I, have, uh, I have a Samsung, and I click on the email icon, and my email pops up. I didn't even know there was an app behind it. All right, well, that's good enough for me. Perfect. All right, so, <laughs> David, last question. What is your biggest unmet need in running your business that you hope someday somebody will build something to address? Yeah, Jeff, that's a, that's a great question. So my day is spent, obviously, working on the challenges uh, that I need to address for the clients that I have. However, I also have to spend time in doing what I call accountings, which is accounting for what I do on a particular client and keeping track of the hours that I spend. And it is remarkable how much time I spend on occasion writing down everything that I've just done. That, of course, is not productive time. It's not, 
It, it doesn't benefit the client in any way. The only reason it benefits me is because ultimately I can provide the client with an accounting of what I've done in order to get paid. But it would be a remarkable app. Perhaps it even exists if I could just sort of real-time either think or dictate what I'm doing and somehow it's captured and it generates the, the time accountings and the invoices automatically. Uh, I just don't know of anything like that. But that would, that would probably give me at least another 30 or 45 minutes a day, depending on how many clients I work on from day to day. So anyway, that's maybe a, maybe, maybe a better answer than, than give me more than 24 hours in a day. No, that's perfect. All right, folks, well, you heard it here. Finding Ultra, a redemption story about how a gifted endurance athlete found his way after losing it to alcoholism. Gerald Hawkins, who led the leadership organization at NC State, pushed David to think for himself and define his own values. Primarily, David's focused on the value of human interaction and that dynamic you only get through really phone and face-to-face -face interaction. But if pushed, the Samsung email app is a technology that's used every day. And if there's one admin need David has, it would be an accounting tool that would help streamline accounting for the time, bill to the client. David, it's been so much fun. Thanks for being a guest on Unmet Need. Yeah, Jeff, thanks a lot. Real, real pleasure. Enjoy your day. Bye-bye.